All right, let's talk about the story that has gone viral across Canada now. The Campbell River senior citizen who stopped an alleged shoplifter at Walmart. I've got Elaine Galloway standing by right now to talk about it. First, have a listen to this story from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. The cart starts to roll, then the camera. You're going to pay for that? The man recording knows the thief plans to walk out, stealing what appears to be hundreds of dollars worth of product. What he doesn't know is this woman is about to be his partner in fighting crime. I'm uh, 4 foot 11, 73 years old and 125 pounds and it was a gut reaction. Okay, let's discuss now with Elaine Galloway, uh, the lady who intervened with that alleged shoplifter there now. Hi, Elaine. Thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. Okay, Elaine, 73 years old. How, how big are you there? What did you say? 4'11", huh? 4'11". Okay. Yeah. How big was this guy you went up against there? Um, probably close to six foot. <laughs> okay. That was a bit of a mismatch, but I think you came out in the, on the winning end of it. All right, yeah. Elaine, let, tell me the story. Like, how did this happen? I guess you were you just shopping another normal day in Walmart when all this went down. Yeah. Like, how did it start? Exactly. It was just a quick, uh, a quick trip to the Walmart for a handful of things. And I happened to be going for dish soap down the, uh, the uh, you know, the cleaning aisle. And I yeah. seen the gentleman shoving uh, roast of beef into a back sack. And I did report it to um, a Walmart employee, and I was told that um, that there had been a lot of vandalism in the store, and they had been instructed not to do anything with it, that security would handle it on the way out. And it uh, just so happened when I went through the checkout, came out, and then he started to proceed out the door. Uh-huh. I, it was just a, it was a quick gut reaction uh, the security guard, uh, the gentleman taping it, w- which I assumed was a security guard, um, when he confronted the guy, um, and he ran, he ran into me. And yeah. um, so that's how the cart and I collided. And then I helped the secu- I was hoping, helping the security guard push back the um, grocery cart that had all the groceries in it. And then I realized that you know, you got to take the balaclava off to get a good picture of him so that the RCMP know who he is. And that's when I reached up and grabbed that. And, of course, everybody says to me, oh, well, didn't you think he might have had a knife? And I said, yeah. well, his hands were full. His hands, he had one hand on his bike and one hand on the shopping cart. So it was uh, a gut reaction just to pull the balaclava off so that you could get a good, clear picture of them. Right, and as I understand it, Elaine, you used to work as a bank teller, so I, I believe you yeah. know how, how important yeah, I had, it is. Uh, uh, 36 years with CIBC, and for 17 of them, I was a bank teller. Yeah. Right, and did you ever, and I, you were uh, robbed at gunpoint, is that correct, in the uh, bank? Yeah, right uh, in, in Sperling Plaza, I was uh, robbed at gunpoint. Wow. Um, and then later on in Calgary, I was robbed a couple more times. Gee whiz, holy cow. And so that's how you knew that, you know, the, the, the getting a picture of the face of the suspect is, is crucial. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. And I think, and, and the frustration uh, that he was going to get away with hundreds of dollars worth of um, of uh, meat and groceries was another frustration. It's in the back of your mind, you know. Yeah, for sure. So what what's going on at that Walmart? Do you shop there a lot? Has there been a lot of shoplifting yeah, going on? Yeah, I do shop there uh, yeah. every week. 
And yes, there has been a lot of vandalism and theft out of that Walmart. Um, Walmart has really, really had its fair share of uh, shoplifting and other things go on there. And how do you feel about that? Are you just like sick and tired of it? Oh, yes. It's, yeah. a, it's a frustration to everybody here in Campbell River that more can't be done towards the crime um, because these guys are getting away with uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of stuff out right. of the Walmart store. They, they're getting so brazen that this guy just walked in, filled up the shopping cart and was going to walk right out. Yeah. Speaking to Elaine Galloway, she's the 73-year-old who stopped an alleged shoplifter there at Walmart in Campbell River. Elaine, um, have you heard from the police? Have the police talked to you about this? Oh, I did. Uh, yeah, my fiancé and I, we contacted the police right away. And uh, uh, when the video went viral and we talked to them and they are already investigating it. Yeah, what's what's the update on that? Do you know the stat that they got no, the guy? or No, no I wasn't. I haven't been informed of anything yet. Yeah, okay. What has been the reaction that you've received since this whole story went wild here? Almost I should have had a bella clap. Why do you say say that? Because you you got people like me phoning you all the time. Yeah, well, I live Uh, in a pretty big-sized apartment building. Everybody calls me Joe Hero, and, you know, I can't believe that I was so gutsy. And I said, well, it's a gut reaction, you know. I said, somebody else might have done it. I don't know. (laughs) Do you feel like a a hero for what you did? No. 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 Why not? No, I'm not really a hero. I I felt at the time I was assisting a security guard that was stopping a, a shoplifter. Yeah. Yeah, do you think it's, um, I mean, how many, how many people, like this story has just gone wild. Have you received a ton of phone calls about it and people looking to talk to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I have. I I've had to monitor my phone um, quite a bit, yes. yeah. Yeah, what do you think about, like, we're going to talk more about the shoplifting surge that we're seeing, not only in the community where you live in Campbell River, but in so many cities in British Columbia. I'm going to speak to a representative of the Vancouver Police Department next, who's We'll talk about the surge in shoplifting we're seeing in in Vancouver. What do you think of that? Like that seems to be going on a lot. Well, I it's the high price that the rest of us all have to pay for, and I think yeah. that's where the frustration is. Is we're all stressed out over COVID, and now we're stressed out over the supply issue, and and the added cost of uh, everything that we're feeling. I mean, our property taxes are going up four and a half percent. My strata fee is going up four percent. Uh, my car insurance is going up four percent, and none of our paychecks are going up four percent. Were you scared at all when you went up against this guy, or like you called it a gut reaction? It was just kind of adrenaline kicking in there, I guess, huh? Oh, strictly, strictly, yeah. Yeah. yes. Okay, would you do it again if you're in the same circumstances again? Would you do it over? Oh, I'm sure I would. Okay. Right. I, I don't think I would hesitate, but but knowing this, <laughs> it might have to take me a little while to calm down from it all. <laughs> okay, Elaine, well, good for you. Thanks for coming on to share the story today. You're welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Well, you heard my conversation there with Elaine Galloway, 73 years old. A lot of people have seen that video, how she confronted that alleged shoplifter there in Walmart, uh, tore the balaclava mask right off of the guy. That video has gone 
viral now. She said she just reacted. It was kind of gut instinct, is running on adrenaline when she confronted this guy. Did she do the right thing? Let's talk to Steve Addison about it, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming on today. Hey, no problem, Mike. What is the advice from police in a situation like that? Look, if you see someone shoplifting, breaking the law, I mean, typically the police say, look, don't get involved because you don't know. This thing could go off the rails. A guy could get violent. Yeah, so we always encourage people to call the police when they, they see a crime in progress. And we generally don't encourage people to take matters into their own hands because uh, doing so could result in them uh, getting injured or hurt. Yeah. We also know, like Ms. Galloway said, sometimes uh, gut instinct uh, kicks in um, and people will do what they think is the best thing to do at the time. Uh, in this case, with Ms. Galloway at the Camel River, that's exactly what she did. She's uh, got lots of experience. She's a tough cookie. She did what she did, <laughs> with, uh, what she thought was the right thing to do at the time. And I'm not going to second guess her for what she did. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't want to get on her uh, on her bad side. Yeah, 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 right. Well, this is a in, woman. In fact, that, in fact, Mike, if I if she wasn't seventy three years old, I'd probably uh, give her a recruiting pamphlet and tell her to join VPD. Yeah, 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 right, right. Well, she's uh, she worked for a long time as a bank teller, and she'd uh, had a couple of stick ups at the bank a few times. So she's been. This is a woman who's been robbed at gunpoint. So, yeah. you know, this is not her first rodeo here at the at the Walmart. But um, you know, I did get a few a few emails from people here during the break saying like, you know, she was lucky that this guy didn't turn violent because you don't know what people are going to do, especially these days. Right. I mean, somebody could be who knows. I mean, they could be on drugs. They could be going through some kind of psychotic episode. You you intervene. Something goes. The guy reacts. Right. I mean, you know that better than anybody as a police officer. Yeah, for sure. Shoplifting is epidemic throughout uh, Vancouver. We're seeing a a troubling increase of violent shoplifters, so people who are feeling emboldened to uh, pull weapons, whether it's bear spray or knives or needles or use physical force to try to get away if they're confronted. Uh, Just yesterday alone, we had three uh, incidents just in our downtown core, which resulted in arrests being made for violent shoplifting incidents. In one of them, staff at a grocery store intervened. They held a suspect down until police arrived. In another one, we had witnesses who called police and followed from a safe distance, providing real-time updates that allowed us to uh, respond and arrest a suspect. What we like to do is we like to tell people that if they see him, if they see a crime in progress, call us right away. Give us the best information that you can in real time so that we can respond and apprehend a suspect. Okay, let's talk about some of those incidents, and I'm grateful to you for sending me the rundown in some of these. So the, the one at the grocery store on Davy Street. Oh, Davy Street again. Wow. There's a lot of trouble on that street. 8 well, o'clock in the... Sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, sure, go ahead. I cut you off. Yeah, no, I mean, Davy Street... Yeah, that's a, that's a troubled neighborhood there. So you get a guy comes in, pushes a clerk aside, and then tries to steal a carton of cigarettes. Now, in that one, you had two people intervene and, and hold the guy down. So, so that guy was arrested, correct? Yeah, this was a 23-year-old, uh, sorry, 23-year-old worker inside a grocery store on Davy Street. We're seeing lots of problems in the West End, lots of problems on Granville Street with uh, thefts and violent shoplifting. So in this case, 8 o'clock in the morning, 23-year-old just at work, um, thief comes in, pushes him aside, muscles past the cash, cash register to steal some smokes. Um, fortunately, there were some other people in the store, other staff members who were able to intervene and hold the suspect down. They called police. Uh, by 911, our officers were able to uh, um, respond, arrest the suspect who's now uh, currently uh, in jail uh, waiting 
to be charged for robbery. Okay, another one at 5 o'clock yesterday. Suspect enters a store on Robson Street, steals some pants and a jacket, goes to another store, uh, tries to get a staff member there to remove the security tags from the clothes. Wow, that's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? Yeah, so as I say, these um, thieves are becoming more brazen and more emboldened. Um, a lot of stores do have no touch policies or no intervention policies with their security. So in this case, we had a suspect who walked into three stores, uh, one after another. It was a high-end retailer in Robson, stole about $325 worth, in, worth of clothing, walked out, went next door, uh, tried to get the staff at another store to remove the security tags, and then went on to um, a third store and stole about $150 worth of uh, lipstick. Finally, uh, a security officer did intervene. However, as we talk about um, the risk to people and, and the, the increasing use of violence, in this case, when the security officer intervened, uh, a knife was pulled. They oh. did the right thing. They called us, provided real-time updates on 911. We were able to arrest that guy. And he, too, is, uh, as we speak, in jail, uh, arrested for robbery and waiting to see a judge. Okay, speaking to Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department about some of the incidents we saw yesterday, shoplifting, violent violent incidents. Here's another one, 22-year-old suspect enters a vape store on Davie Street. Davie Street, again, tries to leave with stuff, uh, confronted by staff. What happened here? Pulled a box cutter. Mm-hmm. So um, young fellow working in the store, try, you know, trying to make a living, on Davie Street, and a suspect enters, um, starts poking around to select some merchandise and tries to leave the store uh, without paying, and the staff member tried to intervene, tried to explain, hey, you need to pay for this before you leave. Uh, that time, the suspect pulled out a box cutter, did leave the store with the merchandise, and um, uh, the staff member, because he called 911, we were able to locate the, uh, conduct an investigation, review some video, find out who the guy was, and we located him close by at a community center. These are just the incidents that were resulted in arrests because people called us. We know right. that this, I mean, this is vastly underreported in terms of uh, shoplifting. And uh, we are working closely with uh, whether they be small businesses or business associations uh, to encourage people to uh, to call us when it happens, to report it so that we know what's going on so that we can hold people accountable. And we're also doing a lot of proactive work throughout the city to target hotspots, whether it be Broadway, Canby Corridor, Grandview, uh, other areas of the city where we're seeing um, a lot of commercial shoplifting and robberies. We're trying to work proactively with people to with businesses and business associations to clamp down on it. Okay, we just have one minute left. Is this just sort of typical day at the office in Vancouver these days, or are you seeing a rise? Like, is this getting worse? Is this happening more often? Um, in terms of uh, shoplifting, it's a it's an epidemic uh, throughout the city. It's happening in all corners of the city, and it's not just Vancouver. It's in other places, too. Uh, we're particularly concerned not just with shoplifting, but with uh, what we're seeing, uh, what appears anecdotally at least to be a rise in uh, violent cases. So shoplifters who are, de- you know, de- whether it's deploying bear spray uh, in a store or pulling out a knife to get away when they're confronted uh, or using some sort of physical force uh, to get away when they're confronted. It's a concern for us. Uh, it's, uh, it has a, a significant impact on, uh, on a lot of young staff members who are oftentimes working their first jobs, who are just trying to make a living. Um, it's, okay. uh, it's, it, and it, it puts people at risk. Thank you for coming on today. You bet, Mike.
All right, welcome back to the show. The breaking news here. We've been covering all morning on the show. Aaron O'Toole out as the federal conservative leader. The vote by the members of his own caucus was not close at all. And he is now out as the conservative leader. Make sure you phone me on the buzz line on that one today. Let me know what you think about that development. Are you happy he's out, not so happy, especially if you're a conservative supporter? Who do you think should be the next leader of the party? Phone me on the buzz line today, and we may play your call later. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Let's talk about the story of the woman. Her mom was in hospital, and she then said that she received a call from the hospital telling her they needed help. They were short-staffed. Could you please come into the hospital and feed your mom? This is a story that's gotten a lot of attention in British Columbia this week. The government, now it's interesting how the government has responded to this one, not exactly coming out and specifically denying that this actually happened, saying they can't comment on specific cases. But the Ministry of Health did put out a statement saying, look, we don't do this. We don't ask family members to come in and feed our patients. Have a listen to this report now from Catherine Urquhart in Global News. In a response to Global News, the Ministry of Health said, there has been no directive at any level to patients' families to assist with feeding due to staffing shortages. Capacity issues are not impacting the feeding of patients. Ensuring patients are fed will always be a priority, regardless of capacity issues. Thank you. Uh, that, that report from Catherine Urquhart there. Let's check in with Brenda Brophy now. Brenda is an advocate for residents of long-term care. Brenda, thank you very much for coming on again. Hi, thanks, Mike. No problem. So when you hear this story, this took place in a hospital, um, is that something that you have heard under similar circumstances in long-term care, similar problems, like family members saying, can you come into long-term care and help us? I don't actually, um, other than one um, one friend of mine, she was, after the lockdown happened a few months into it, they called her to say that her mom was refusing staff assistance, mainly because her daughter was usually there every day. So they called her because they could see that her mom was losing weight and diminishing quickly. So that was kind of a a good news story in the sense that they um, offered her to be an essential visitor after the lockdown. Prior to that, because I was there um, daily with my mom, she was still somebody who communicated and fed herself. But I've seen um, seniors sitting at tables. Uh, One day I saw a lady sitting there. They hadn't given her any cutlery, so she was just sitting there because she didn't have anybody to ask. So I, I took her some. But I've seen people sitting there either having to wait or there being staff shortages and not getting fed as they should, and they just get wheeled back to their room. So I haven't heard a lot of instances of the facilities or the hospital calling family, but it's certainly it's common for family to take on this role out of necessity. Um, yeah. But certainly when I, my mom was in palliative care in the last um, 12 days of her life, they only had one healthcare worker on that floor, and it was mostly seniors um, at end of life. And they were always run off their feet. And there was one day where they were very short-staffed, but I was there 24 hours a day. They would peek in just to make sure everything was okay and if I was able to care for my mom. so But other than that, I don't really know at that point what would have happened if I hadn't been there. It's I kind would, of a, you know, it, took it on. Would you say that it's 
it's understandable to a degree that facilities are short-staffed, whether it's hospitals or long-term care. Yesterday, the health minister, Adrian Dix, for example, said that in the BC healthcare system, last week alone, there were 17,000 healthcare workers off the job, maybe some of them sick, a lot of them. Yeah, and I don't think that you can be so naive as to think that's not going to have a drastic impact on the care of patients. So I understand that politicians come out spinning messages, but I think that we'd all respect it a lot more if they just had some integrity and said, hey, um, you're right, we need family, we need to let figure out how to get people in, we're going to notify you if we have significant shortages, let the nursing lead know that you can come in and help or, or whatever it takes but not to kind of try and hide the fact that it's impacting patient care. You okay, can't Brent, give the patient care you need this way. Brenda, stand by here, stay on the line here as I uh, introduce Helen Bell. And Helen Bell is, is the daughter who uh, went to the hospital to feed her mom, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show today. Helen, thank you very much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, Helen, could you explain what happened? This is a story that's received a lot of attention in, in BC this week. When did you receive this phone call from the hospital to come and feed your mom? Um, quarter to eight in the morning on Monday. So I was just, you know, woken up, and then suddenly I got a call from the hospital, which is very alarming. Like, you can tell it's the hospital from call display. And then they say, oh, I'm calling about your mother, and my heart takes a big leap. And then they say, we're really sorry, but we don't have enough... Um, staff on enough care aids and we need family help we need you to come in and feed her all three meals today as a family we were coming in and feeding her most meals but we didn't realize that it was um, essential that we do that i guess they had only one care aid on for 37 patients i heard wow wow so this is something that you and your family had been already doing you'd already been coming into the hospital to feed your mom and maybe sounds like maybe they gotten used to that i guess huh yeah, we had been coming yeah. and often doing it, but yeah. at the same time, she's been in hospital for three months, and there's only three of us that can do that, and that's a lot of commitment. Like, we do have other lives, so we want to help, but it's a big difference between where we're working it in around our own lives versus, my golly, my mother is going to sit there and look at the food tray for a few hours if we don't get down there and feed her. Yeah, how did you, what did you think when you received that call uh, saying, look, we need, really need you to come in here today and feed your mom all three meals today because we're so short-staffed? What went through your mind when you heard that? Well, I think the hospital system is reeling with the thousand people that have COVID in the hospital and so many staff out sick. And yeah. I think they're doing the best they can. I do think the staff are working hard and trying to you know, take care of the patients. But I think we just don't have the capacity in our hospital system to have a lot more COVID go through our society because that would mean even more patients in the hospital and even more staff sick. And I think we're at the breaking point. Like these poor staff, I'm sure they don't like making those phone calls either to say, hey, we can't do the care that we want to do because I know that they're conscientious and do want to provide good care. Speaking to Helen Bell about her mom at Royal Jubilee Hospital in Victoria and she received a phone call, please come in and help us and feed, feed your mom. What do you think, Helen, about the response from the health ministry on this this week? We heard the health minister say yesterday that he could not comment specifically about your mom's case, but he also said that generally we don't do this. We don't phone family members and tell them, ask them to come in and feed their, feed their patients. Your thoughts? 
Well, I would agree with that. She's been in hospital almost 100 days, and we've never received a phone call like that. But we've, in the last few weeks in Victoria, the numbers have really shot up, and we're definitely seeing a difference in quality of care. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know you're, you are a veterinarian, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you're a, you're a doctor yourself, and when you, like, I'm interested in your perspective, when you go into the hospital and you see the conditions there, this, the staffing levels and the care that people are receiving, as, as a medical professional yourself, like, what do you think about what you're seeing there? Um, I think I'm seeing hardworking staff, but I think I'm yeah. seeing not enough of them. And I think some of the little things that make a big difference to the quality of care, like spending time talking with the patients, talking with the families, kind of just reviewing the charts in more detail, looking for those small details that might help with the diagnosis or with the therapy. I don't think those things are getting done as much. Yeah. And I think some of the adjuvant things like therapy, um, like physiotherapy, etc., I think they're stretched as well. So I think some of those things that lead to good outcomes in patients are not at the same quality level that, that they have been in the past. Yeah. yeah. How is your mom doing now? Um, she's... she's managing we're hoping that she will have some improvement but she's been it's hard for her to feel like actually yesterday she fell out of her chair and i think she's trying so hard to you know get well but but there's just it's tough it's not the same level of care that we're used to having in bc and i'm just worried about the future that if we don't get COVID under control somehow and we're constantly having a thousand people in the hospital and constantly, you know, staff out ill because the virus keeps going, that that our care levels will not be as good. Already we've seen COVID decrease life expectancies in BC and I'm just really worried that this is going to keep going on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I know you're not alone in that. Helen, thank you for coming on to share the story today and I hope your your mom a- improves. Well, Thanks thank a lot. You. Okay. Yeah. Welcome back to the show. We continue talking about hospital patients, long-term care residents. Are they getting the care they need? You heard my conversation there with Helen Bell and her mom. She she says she was called to the hospital to feed her mom earlier this week. Phone me on this now. Are you seeing similar conditions at the hospital or long-term care home where your loved one is? 604-280-9898, star 9898. On your cell, Brenda Brophy still with me. Let's go to your calls. Sandra in Abbotsford. Hi, Sandra. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Uh, Hi. Yeah, I um, work in long-term care. I have for 35 years. I have a mother in long-term care, and I just feel we're doing a grave injustice. I also had a husband that passed in 220 in the acute care hospital. Me and my kids couldn't see him for two weeks. He was 66. I strongly believe had he had the support of family, he went in for a leg amputation, and I think he gave up. I just think he gave up, and yeah, I just, I think they do an awesome job. I work in it myself, but I believe we need families. We need to, you know, there's no one held accountable. We need, our families need us when they're in long-term care. They need us when they're in acute care. And it breaks my heart. My kids couldn't see their father. Then he passed four weeks later. Sandra, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry for your loss, and thank you for sharing this story with us. Brenda Brophy, I mean, we've talked a lot on previous shows about the importance of family members having access to their loved ones in long-term care and visitors. Now, the, the government now has, they've expanded the visitor visitation uh, rights, correct? 
They have. They've created a lot of confusion as well because they didn't mandate anything and they still have the criteria around essential visitors. So it it has opened up a little bit. But what families have been asking for all along is to have it mandated so facilities can't deny access and you can have at least one or two people have that access to go in and take care of them. Let's go take some more calls here. Paul calling from Kelowna. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Uh, Mike, thanks for letting me weigh in on this. Uh, just quickly, let me take you next door to Alberta, and I feel for Helen and her uh, family out there in, in Victoria. I don't find the situation that strange, frankly. My mother-in-law is 87 years old. She was in the hospital over Christmas in Calgary. They only allow two primary visitors, and if somebody's not available from the family to go in there, there's many times, many times, where care is not given, you know, the the food goes uneaten, they're not helped. And it's simply because these poor people in the hospital, you know, God love these people that are doing their health work in hospitals. She's in in an extended care facility, and that situation is far better than they are actually in the hospital, frankly. So she's getting better care in the the care center. But these hospitals, uh, you know, they they are just overcooked. And I feel for them, and it's a sad, sad situation. Thank you for sharing that. Brenda, is that a familiar story to you? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, even when you have a senior in care that can feed themselves, sometimes they just don't. And there's when someone has dementia, there's, you know, different ways. And, you know, like, for instance, they may give them three big meals a day, but somebody with dementia, it's known from the research, needs like small meals several times a day. Um, Someone sitting with them and engaging, but oftentimes they wheel them in, throw food in front of them because they don't have staff to sit with them and do anything. And then when it's not eaten, it all goes in the garbage. Anybody Mm. who's been inside there sees like these massive piles of uneaten food, and then they're kind of wheeled back to their rooms or left to sit alone in the dining room. That's very common. That's really heartbreaking to hear. Kestrel in Langley. Hi, Kestrel. Go ahead. Oh, hello. Hi. Uh, yeah, no, first of all, I, just, I want to express gratitude for all the carries, and, and I know everyone's doing their best. This, this has to do with the situation at uh, the hospital. My, my mom was being sent for routine surgery. She has a feeding tube, and there was one instance where the hospital said, we will not take her unless you send a care aid, and uh, oh. the care home was very short-staffed, so... Uh, a private carriage was hired without our consent. And then eventually the hospital called us to say, here's this bill. And I was kind of uh-huh. astonished. And, you know, the, I equated it to like uh, my child's uh, school calling me and saying, uh, you know, we have to hire an education assistant for your child. Here's the bill. And so hang on, let me let me say let me make sure I got this straight. So you're saying the hospital said we need to hire a private care aide for your mother, and they and they billed you for it. Is that what you? Is that right? They, they told the care home we will not, we can't take her in unless you send her with a care aide. I and see. And the care home is struggling to keep up, so they you know a third party had to be hired. So I thought to myself, well, if you're short staffed, I, I understand we do as much as we can to collaborate for her care and i know many families do but what astonished me was i mean are you short funded like if you have the fund this is a public i would assume, okay. I hope so it's a public service so it's kind of astonished me castro thank you very much for sharing that story brenda brophy thank you for your continued advocacy for residents of long-term care and their families and it's always great to have you on here thank you for coming on today 
Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. It's a bad day for conservative leaders, as you just heard there on your news report. Aaron O'Toole is out as the leader of Canada's federal conservative party. His own MPs do him in on a confidence vote today in Ottawa. Aaron O'Toole is out. He's been sacked as the leader of the conservative party. Could Boris Johnson be the next Conservative Party leader to be done in by his own MPs. Sounds familiar. It's almost like it's Groundhog Day with all this going on. Getting deja vu here across the pond. Well, it is Groundhog Day. What do you know? So this is fascinating, isn't it? You got the Boris Johnson now on the ropes. Apparently, seems to be, maybe he's hanging in there. This follows the release earlier this week of that report into the Partygate scandal, the parties that were going on a 10 Downing Street, an apparent contravention of COVID rules in the United Kingdom. That report came out on Monday. It was critical of the government. Johnson just taking a pounding over this. Now, have a listen to this. There's Boris Johnson uh, basically apologizing for what's in that report earlier this week. Here's what he had to say. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I do care deeply about the hurt that is felt across the country uh, about the suggestion that uh, things were going on in number 10 that were in contravention of the, of the COVID rules. And I understand how deeply people feel about this and how angry uh, that they are. And, and, I, and I've apologised uh, several times, Mr Speaker, but I must say that I think we should wait for the outcome of the inquiry by, before jumping to the conclusions uh, that he has. And in the meantime, we should focus on the issues that matter to the British people. Okay, so Boris Johnson saying he's going to fix these problems at 10 Downing Street going forward. However, some of his own conservative MPs now publicly turning against him. Have a listen to this. This is uh, conservative MP Tobias Elwood. Have a listen. I don't think the Prime Minister realizes how worried colleagues are in every corner of the party, backbenchers and ministers alike, that this is all only going one way and will invariably slide towards a very ugly place. I believe it's time for the Prime Minister to take a grip of this. He himself should call a vote of confidence. Okay, let's go live to London now with analysis. My guest is Laura Hood, politics editor at The Conversation UK, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Laura, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Difficult day for conservative leaders. Yes, it certainly is on both sides of the pond here, it, it appears. So we, we see now, I just played that clip of one conservative MP turning against Johnson here publicly. How many is that now? How many conservative MPs have turned against the prime minister now? Reports uh, differ on this. We've had certainly had three in the past 24 hours, possibly five, depending on how you count them. Um, and potentially around a dozen letters may have been submitted to this committee that would run a no confidence vote against him. Um, but crucially, we don't actually know um, always how many letters have gone in because they don't have to make them public. So actually, any number could have gone in this stage. Right. And there's a minimum number of letters that are required to trigger a confidence vote, correct? Yes, that's 54. But it's also crucial to remember that these letters can go in at any time and they can be removed and put back again. Um, And history tells us that it doesn't have to come in a flurry. It could just be a really, really steady drip. And I think Tobias Elwood's words were interesting there. He was talking about a slide towards something more serious. You can note that it's not actually clear what these um, MPs are really calling for, what they want from Boris Johnson when they're speaking out against him. But they are basically warning him that he's on a trajectory that he probably doesn't want to continue down. 
Yeah, and I, I listened very carefully to those comments there from the Conservative MP that we just played, Tobias Elwood. And, and as you mentioned, he said that this is something that's going on among Conservative MPs on the backbenches, in Cabinet, that they're losing confidence in the Prime Minister. They want the Prime Minister to take the, the bull by the horns here and just call a vote of confidence himself. Like, can he do that? Can, can Johnson just submit to a, a confidence vote at any time without these letters being filed? Uh, he could, but he probably wouldn't want to do, want to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it's also worth remembering that it's not not necessarily clear that he would lose a confidence vote. Um, right. We need 54 letters to trigger one, but that's still pretty far off, um, you know, half of the the caucus in, in Parliament. So it's not actually clear that he would lose the vote anyway. And also, if they leap too soon, they can only do this once in a year. If they if they mm. trigger um, a vote now, they have to wait a full year before they could do it again. So they really want to be sure that they would win it. So they don't necessarily want the uh, momentum to build up that quickly while they still don't necessarily know that they're on the right footing. OK, that's very interesting. Speaking to Laura Hood, politics editor at The Conversation UK in on the line in London. Laura, what is the reaction of the British people right now to the revelations in that report this week on the Partygate scandal? I think people continue to be really angry. Um, you know, I, I've said it before, but it, it's, it's just this sense that um, while we were all really living under very difficult conditions, um, a culture of partying was happening. And I think that's the key yeah. to this report. It was very, very short. So unlike a lot of investigations of this kind, any member of the public could read it in about five minutes. The meat of it was actually covered on just one page of A4. Um, so you don't have to wade through loads of detail to understand what was going on. And Sue Gray talks about a culture of um, heavy drinking, um, failure of leadership, um, failure to observe high standards expected of those in government. Um, and I think people and also crucially, there was a list of dates. You know, there's there's 16 events that we're talking about here, 12 of which are currently being investigated by the police. And they've given um, dates for all of these things. And, and that's actually quite crucial because what's what the public here are doing a lot of the times looking back through their phones and looking at the pictures that they've taken on those dates to look at the miserable lives they were living <laughs> while yeah, partying yeah. was happening in the seat of government. Right. And Boris Johnson this week has said that he can fix this, that he wants to change this culture at 10 Downing Street, this boozy culture, apparently, that was described in, in this report. What specifically has he said that how would how would Boris Johnson go about repairing and fixing this? Well, his approach um, was very much to sort of cling on to the rather boring admin-y elements of the report and sort of talk about setting up a new office, a new permanent secretary, bringing in new yeah. um, blood to kind of sort things out. But it ultimately, it has very much been taken as, a, as an attempt to kind of deflect from his own role as a leader. Um, we had an organisational expert write for us this week on the conversation talking about how culture flows from the top. It flows from the person that sanctions the kind of behavior that's going on. So the idea that you could switch things around, bring in new staff, put up a new office, has really not held much truck with the general public. Yeah. Is there any sense that the tide might be turning a little bit and Johnson just might survive this? Like, it seemed very dire for him at the start of this, but I know there's been some commentary that from people have said, look, you know, we've got we've got all we've got bigger fish to fry here. We've got this uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. We've got this continuing pandemic. We've got the economy to worry about. Is this really what we want to do right now to to sack a prime minister over some parties? 
Like it's not exactly, you know, Watergate. It's we're talking about parties here. Is there any sense of that that some people might be sort of stepping back from the brink on this? I think that the, the, his um, Johnson's people are certainly trying to sell a line that the public are much more interested in what's happening in Ukraine and, and, and the cost yeah. of living. Crisis. And that's certainly true. Um, but I think it just builds to a sort of overall picture of a man who's not necessarily serious. Um, and it, although the kind of, this story has all the fun little details, the Prosecco and ABBA parties, at the heart of it is is a question of of true hardship on the public uh, uh, on the part of the general public. Um, and he's facing local elections in May, and and really. There's a kind of sense that he he doesn't particularly la uh, doesn't particularly have a vision um, for the nation going forward, and and perhaps his MPs will give him a chance to present his vision. But if that's not forthcoming, um, and all he is to them is an election winner, and he stops to be that election winner, then there's not much point in having him around. That said, I think you're right that there's it, there is a very real possibility that he could he could survive this, and that's yeah, yeah. largely because it's not very clear who would replace him. Laura, we're watching it closely, to say the least. Thank you once again for coming on today with your analysis. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that new 10-cent deposit on the purchase of a container of milk. This is now the law of the land in British Columbia. It kicked in on February 1st. 10-cent deposit when you purchase milk or milk substitute beverages. The provincial government says, of course, this is a, an effort to cut down on waste. Uh, the Ministry of Environment estimates between 20 and 40 million milk containers could be recycled every year now that this deposit refund system is in place. Let's discuss now with my guest, Sean Miles. Sean is director of the Binners Project. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me. Sean, thanks a lot for coming on. Tell me about the Binners Project really briefly. What do you guys do there? For sure. Yeah, we're, we're a charity and, uh, and social enterprise based in the downtown east side. We support Binners, uh, who uh, some of your listeners may know as uh, dumpster divers or those uh, individuals who collect cans and bottles and other um, materials from, from dumpsters and other, and other kind of waste streams with the idea of returning them for refund or re reusing or recycling those things that they can. Yeah, I guess everyone's familiar with the binners for sure. Like, how many? Mm -hmm. there, are there a lot of people who do binning, like dumpster divers? That doesn't sound very nice, though. The dumpster diver, <laughs> binner, binner. Like, how many binners are there in Vancouver? Oh, it would be really tough to get a to get a fulsome number. Uh, you know, we we work with um, over a hundred um, members who who bin. Um, probably closer to 150, um, but we just are scratching the surface. There, there, there's uh, people in kind of throughout the communities. We obviously are more focused on the downtown side, where there is a, a, a higher concentration probably than in some areas. But um, anyone, of, I'm sure, of your listeners will know there. You, they'll see people kind of in any community, and we, and we do we do see them being um, quite an important part of the the kind of circular economy and and trying to reduce those efforts across uh, the province and, and frankly around the world. Okay, let's talk about this deposit, this new deposit on milk containers, Sean. Is this mm -hmm. going? I mean, for a binner, I mean, this is like a new a new item they can look for, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, we are very excited to see this come in, and we've been advocating for it for for a number of years. Um, 
So, so we're very happy to see this being added. It's uh, not only is it obviously just an increased opportunity for uh, the binners when they're out there, uh, one more thing that they can can collect um, to to redeem, but it's also um, lightweight. Um, so there's there's you know you look at all these containers as opposed to say glass bottles. There's there's an accessibility piece where we work with binners who are getting older and or have you know physical uh, limitations, and so additional opportunities that are. Um, you know, more accessible to them um, are are just a, a net positive in our in our book. Right. So, which items are included with this ten cent deposit? Because it's not just plastic uh, milk containers, but it's also the like the, the cardboard. Tetra yeah, tetra, tetra yeah, pack. So right. It's, so it's essentially all um, what they, the uh, Encore uh, um, the return it system are defining as drinkable milk. So it's it's any of those containers. You have both the plastic and the tetra packs. Um, for milks that you would drink uh, on its own as opposed to like adding to something. So like coffee creamers are not kind of a part of this system as it currently stands um, or anything like, uh, you know, whipping cream, whereas like one, two, three percent milk and then as well, any of those um, milk alternatives um, that that you again would drink kind of on its own. Those are what's included um, in the in this 10 cent deposit. So those are the only things that people will re- be charged a 10 cent deposit on. Any of those other items, there just won't be a, a, that additional ten cents charged. Right. So this has already kicked in. It kicked in on February first. What are you hearing from binners? Are they already cashing in on milk containers now? Uh, well, we, you know, they, we're we haven't heard, and we're waiting to hear kind of what we see as far as the impact goes on on the the actual kind of economic impact. Um, but we've been, you know, we've been talking to binners about it for for since it was kind of officially announced, and everyone's very positive, excited about it. Um, the reality is, is that the way that um, the Encore kind of rolled it out is that it's you can only start redeeming things that have a February second or later expiry date. So people couldn't have necessarily stored up a bunch of things over a period of time. It, it really is, you know, only going to be today um, that we might even really see people starting to kind of uh, take take a bit more oh, of an advantage of that. So, right. um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, we're, we're, we're expecting to, to hear more on the, the impact. Um, but um, as it stands, we just have heard a lot of really excited binners um, about the change. Right. So if you have a best before date on a milk container that's prior to February 1st, that it, would not, it, yeah. not be eligible yeah. for the refund. So does that mean yeah. the bin, the binners as they're, as they're doing their binning and they see a milk container, not, you got to check for the best yeah. before date. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so I mean, obviously, that is uh, just for this little transition period. As this, uh, that'll obviously go away even in uh, like another yeah. week or so, where pretty much everything will be in the system will be that. But that yeah. is there the, the way that the, the depots are are supposedly going to be checking those um, as they're being refunded. Right. Speaking of Sean Miles, he's the director of the Binners Project. A lot of these containers, like I know in our house, we drink a lot of milk in our house, and you know, I was quite quite dutiful on making sure to recycle all this stuff like it gets put Mm -hmm. in our it gets put in our blue bin but um so i was recycling this stuff uh now i guess you know there's obviously an incentive to return it for the for the deposit like was there a lot of this stuff ending up in landfills to your knowledge yeah that is uh, that is one of the 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 reasons i believe that this was brought in was that there was still even though yes you're right you were still able to already um return these items or recycle them i should say through your blue bins or things like that, uh, they were still finding that a number of them were making it to landfill. And so this is a way to, again, 
incentivize and also just help reduce that 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 impact on the on the kind of uh, solid waste stream. Hey Sean, what's it like uh, the life of a binner these days? Like, you know, I've I've sometimes heard from people who say, okay, I know the the binners are doing a good job, but I I don't mm-hmm. like I don't like it when they're rummaging around in the alley behind my house at like you know six a.m. and waking people yeah. up and smashing glass yeah. around. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would I would uh, say that from from our experience that, you know, what you're describing, what had those situations are the minority of situations that um, happen with binners, the binners that, that we work with and those that we know in the community uh, are, um, you know, their focus is on waste diversion. It is on being a respectful part of the community. And part of what we try to advocate for is destigmatizing the work of binners as being uh, an integral part of uh, the waste diversion and of the circular economy. And um, so, so I think, uh, you know, it's, it's never been an easy, uh, position for binners to be in. They are, uh, in general, a marginalized group. And the reasons that many of them come to binning is because this is the option that they can, uh, they can do to kind of supplement their income. So, uh, so I think, um, we try to do things like advocate for that and just recognize that, you know, they, they are an important part and trying to get their voices out directly as much as we can. But also we try and support with some infrastructure projects. So you mentioned the, back alley we developed uh, with binners uh, a number of years ago a, a binners hook which is essentially a, a stainless steel hook that you can install in your back alley um, so that you can just literally put a bag out on that hook with those um, those bottles and cans and things that are worth a deposit so the binner can just come around and grab those instead of having to dig through your your recycling or your garbage looking for those things right if we're if we were already kind of you know recognizing what is and isn't um, returnable, this is just a way to make it easy to reduce that kind of noise uh, pollution you're talking about, or just in general, make it easier for binners to do their work in a dignified way. Sean, it's been very interesting to talk to you today. Thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me.